Hey everybody, I'm Dr. Andy Rourke and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. Guys, got to throw a little warning, uh, disclaimer, uh, just um, trigger alert right here at the very, very beginning. This episode does talk about suicide and there are descriptions of suicide and discussion of suicide methods and means. Uh, if that is upsetting, please uh, skip this episode and uh, check out some of our other great episodes. Uh, if you want to learn more about veterinary medicines and mental health, especially the LGBTQ plus community and mental health in veterinary medicine, then this is going to be a great episode. Before we get into it, let me just give you a quick heads up. You guys have uh, probably known me for a long time. You know that I love to teach. I love to travel. I love to talk. I love to tell stories. And I am actually running a workshop on doing just that. That's right. On Wednesday, August 19th at um, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific time, I will be doing a workshop on speaking persuasively to groups. It's called Finding Your Voice, How to Speak Persuasively to Groups. This is for anybody that uh, sees themselves in front of an audience at any time in the future. If you're talking to pet owners, doing like a puppy kitten night, things like that, dental health presentations to pet owners. If you're going to be talking to your boss and there's a group of bosses or your manager and your practice owner, things like that. If you're going to be like a head technician and you're doing presentations at a staff meeting or you're a doctor talking to the other doctors and trying to get them on board anytime you have to be persuasive when talking to more than one person that is what this workshop is all about um check it out i'll put the link down below it is free to uncharted members it is 99 to the public it will be two hours long and uh bring a topic that you're interested in working on and an audience that you imagine yourself talking to and that's all we need and we'll get to work on your stuff so again that'll be wednesday August 19th, uh, register today. I'd love to see you there. And with that, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome back, Dr. Tracy Woody. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I always uh, I always enjoy our conversations. You are doing uh, fascinating stuff. You are doing more research on mental health and wellness in the vet industry than uh, I think anybody else out there. And you're doing really meaningful stuff. So thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much. I enjoy my work for sure. It is it is fascinating. You have two uh, scientific papers that have come out. One has just come out. The other one came out in June. Uh, I want to talk about both of them today, if that's okay. Let's uh, let's uh, mm-hmm. talk about the first one uh, more quickly, and then I want to I want to delve into the second one. So the first one is more on your work with storage of euthanasia solution, which you know is a uh, is a passion of mine and something that I mm-hmm. I feel strongly about. So in uh, JAVMA in June. You had a commentary piece called Storage of Euthanasia Solution as a Factor in Addressing Veterinarian Suicides. Um, mm-hmm. let's, let's start to unpack that a little bit. Can you lay out kind of the general premise of the, uh, of the commentary? Well, really, our intention for writing this commentary was to provide a briefer, more accessible summary of our paper that came out last year. So it's not really presenting any new data, but we know that our previous paper just had a lot of numbers, a lot of statistics. It was kind of overwhelming. And we wanted something that, you know, the average practitioner who's super busy would be able to read and kind of Mm -hmm. get the gist of what we were looking at. And we also kind of viewed it as a 
call to action or um, in that we're, we're trying to work with the veterinary community to, to generate solutions that are workable for everyone. And we mm-hmm. want to make it clear that we're not trying to come in and, and mandate anything that's going to make everyone's lives harder. Right. Um, so that's, that was the main purpose. And it was just kind of summarizing our, our previous finding, especially focusing on our finding that it looks like uh, the use of pentobarbital as a suicide method maybe accounting for the higher suicide rate that we see in veterinarians. And then the corollary of that is that if we can figure out ways to store pentobarbital um, and prevent people from using it for suicide, that could lower the suicide rate in the the vet population, which is, of course, a really important goal. Yeah. Okay. One of the the comments that you make in the commentary that I I think is really important when we talk about pentobarbital, we talk about drug restriction to prevent suicide in vet medicine. Um, All people who die by, uh, sorry, all people who die by suicide have two things in common, access to lethal means and the knowledge or ability to use them. Uh, I I think Mm -hmm. that that kind of sums up a a lot of the uh, concern about about pentobarbital in, in the vet profession. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about um, and you and you is beautiful. So it's, it's only two pages long. It's in uh, it's in the June fifteenth JABMA. You guys can uh, you can download it. Uh, it is a quick mm-hmm. read. It is a really good read. Um, it is it is very accessible. Uh, can you talk a little bit about mean switching, which is uh, something that you cover mm-hmm. a little bit here? The I guess the idea being uh, people say, well, uh, if access to pentobarbital is limited. Uh, for for vet professionals, then people who want to in their lives will just find a different way to do it. And I think that mm-hmm. that's just a really important point. Can you can you unpack the response to that? Yeah, and that's a really common response, and it makes intuitive sense um, to make that argument. And that and people say, well, this is futile. We can prevent people from accessing one method, then they're just going to use another. But there's a good deal of research looking at means safety um, for means like firearms um, and also access to bridges that had become popular um, uh, locations for suicide. And what's been shown in multiple studies is that if people are prevented from using the method that they've kind of worked themselves up toward getting comfortable Mm with, they don't tend to switch methods. They don't tend to easily just switch to something else. Now, of course, occasionally that does happen. It's not impossible. Um, But the other aspect of means safety that you focus on is um, limiting access to means that are highly lethal and don't allow the possibility of intervention. So firearms are an example of that. And, And in the United States in general, firearms are the most common method used for suicide. They're highly lethal methods. Um, and it's hard to change your mind or, or kind of get interrupted in the process. Um, so if we were to increase the safety of storing firearms, and again, we're not talking about eliminating firearms, we're just storing them more safely. Um, and a person changed to a different method, like overdosing on some sort of prescription medication, they're less likely to die from that method, even if mm-hmm. they switch to it. The tricky thing with veterinarians is, uh, pentobarbital is clearly highly lethal. That's exactly what it's designed 
right. to do. And, and also veterinarians have specific training in how to enact death with this mm-hmm. method, which is different from, you know, other medical professionals. Um, we want to be careful when we're talking about increasing mean safety with pentobarbital that we also, as part of that conversation, consider mean safety regarding firearms too, because firearms are also very lethal methods of suicide. In our paper, we showed that that was um, the next most common method used. Um, And so we want to have a conversation about um, mean safety in general for veterinarians focusing on really these two means. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And and in a population, you can, there are data showing that when um, certain methods of suicide that are highly lethal are made less accessible, you can show that the suicides using those methods go down. But importantly, the overall suicide rate goes down too. You're not just seeing people switching from one method right. to something else. Yeah. yeah. I, and think, we think I there's something like psychological that people, they get used to a particular method. They have to work their their uh, their way up to using that method psychologically, and you can't just easily switch that habituation to something else. Yeah, I I, uh, I read that a lot of people, um, when they think about suicide, there are means that seem acceptable to them. You know, mm-hmm. how, however you take that term, but but not all means are equally acceptable. You know, there are certain ways you can go. Um, yes. I can get my head around this and, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of other things you go, no, I, I just can't get my head around that. And so I, I think that, that we do a sales pitch for pentobarbital uh, very, very often. And that um, mm-hmm. I, I think that that makes it much probably more acceptable for veterinarians. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can um, The last thing I want to talk about on this before we move to the other paper, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, w- a window of intent? Some people say, well, you know, mm-hmm. restricting access to uh, lethal medications is one thing. Restricting them forever uh, is another thing. Just people have so much access just because of, right. of the need to use these medications during the day. Can, mm-hmm. can you talk about, um, about the timing of intervention a little bit? Yeah, and this is something that's, been discussed and researched a lot within the field of suicide where people talk about, um, you know, people impulsively deciding to attempt suicide kind of on, on a whim or spur of the moment, um, versus whether people really plan for a long time leading up to it. And, um, what the research shows is that people will kind of have an idea in mind of a a method that they'd use or maybe a way that they would die by suicide, but they, um, so they might have a plan at the ready, but not be in a suicidal crisis, which tends Mm -hmm. to be a pretty short lived state. And then when they're in that state, they might sort of retrieve that plan and enact it. And that period of suicidal crisis tends to be fairly time limited. It could be a matter of hours or days. And so, with mean safety, we're not talking about preventing someone from accessing pentobarbital or firearms forever, but it's just mm-hmm. when they're in that really intense state, making those those uh, methods less accessible can be life-saving. And I think one really compelling study, and it's, it, it's a little bit older now, but they looked at people who uh, were trying to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, which was a, a very popular location for suicide for a long time. And there were folks who had been 
they were about to jump and had been pulled off the ledge against mm-hmm. their will. Um, they studied them for, I think, 15, 20 years down the road. 90 plus percent of them were still alive yeah. all that time later. And the idea is that, and these weren't people who necessarily had even received intensive psychiatric care after that, that rescue attempt. The idea is that if you can be saved during that really intense period of time of a crisis, that this can have a long-term impact, even if you don't have like daily regular interventions beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's, I think those are the, um, the most important points for, for people to realize that, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, we're talking about crisis windows and mean switching is not as common as people think it is. And so that, mm-hmm. those are the big, the big takeaways for me. So uh, again, thank you for, thank you for the research that you did. I'll put a link um, for the original interview that you and I did when we talked through the research as it came out yeah. as much more uh, in depth. So people who are interested can definitely find that. I'll put that in the, uh, in the show notes. Let's talk about your new piece, which has just mm-hmm. come out. The uh, it's, again, it's in Javma as well. It came out on the August 15th uh, issue. Mm-hmm. The title is A Survey of Negative Mental Health Outcomes. It's very long. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A Survey of Negative Mental Health Outcomes, Workplace and School Climate and Identity Disclosure for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer, Questioning, and Asexual Veterinary Professionals and Students in the United States and the United Kingdom. (gasps) (sighs) (laughs) They wouldn't let us just use LGBTQ plus in the title, so they they made us write it all out. Okay, Which is cool. why it's so incredibly long. But okay, um, uh, sum- summarize the title for us. To uh, <laughs> what? It, what is this about? What? It, what? Are, what are you researching here? What are you getting into? Yeah. So this study really came from a an AVMA wellness roundtable that I attended back in 2016, and at that roundtable, we were talking about mental health and wellness in the vet community in general. Um, but Dr. Mike Chaddock was there and he pointed out correctly that there's been almost nothing looking at wellness among LGBTQ vet professionals and students. And in fact, the 2015 study that I collaborated on with Randy Nutt, um, our large national survey of veterinarians, we mistakenly did not assess gender identity or sexual orientation in that paper. So we weren't even able to like provide any rudimentary information about this population. So um, I really, when, when Dr. Chanak pointed that out, I very excitedly volunteered to help conduct this study. And what we did was uh, it's, it's a survey study. We sent out email invitations and recruited a, I think an impressively large sample of LGBTQ uh, vet professionals and students folks in the US and UK who are um, veterinarians, vet techs, vet nurses, students, all, the, the whole gamut. And so what we were trying to look at was a few things. One is just some basic uh, mental health statistics. And we did some comparisons with that Uh, Net et al. study, our 2015 study that I mentioned, to compare a sample of LGBTQ folks to um, a a large sample of predominantly heterosexual cisgender folks. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so we wanted to look at, you know, history of suicide ideation, depression, suicide attempts, psychological distress. We also wanted to look at different climate variables. So getting a sense of like how supportive the average um, professional setting is for LGBTQ people or, and students. Um, what kinds of policies are available that are friendly to this population? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we additionally wanted to look at disclosure. So, you know, how likely are these individuals to be out fully to the people that they're working with or the people that they go to school with? Um, and then finally, we wanted to look at how all of these, um, the climate variables and um, degree of outness were associated with the negative mental health outcomes. And we we did some analyses to look at the degree to which this differed for vet professionals versus vet students. And again, when I'm saying vet professionals, I'm including veterinarians, but also other veterinary staff. Yeah, so support staff technicians. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, we did not include um, like practice managers and receptionists. So it was just okay. medical staff. So vet assistants, technologists, technicians, and nurses, because this included a UK sample. Gotcha. Okay, very cool. So what um, <clears throat> what were you most surprised by? Gosh, well, what one thing that I was, I don't know if surprised is the right term, but um, I something that stood out to me was that um, I would now it's hard to remember what exactly I thought when I was starting to do this, but I'm a little bit surprised that the professionals, the vet professionals seemed to be in more supportive environments than the students. Mm -hmm. Um, They reported that their environment was more supportive. And I guess I'm in a university setting. I think of university settings as generally being LGBTQ friendly. Um, but I think the culture in some of the vet um, uh, the vet colleges may be a little bit different than the university at large. Um, and so we were seeing that the students were more likely to, for example, experience homophobic or transphobic language at school compared wow. to what the, the vet professionals were experiencing. I think part of this too is that the vet professionals are able to self-select into mm-hmm. more supportive environments. They have a lot more freedom to yeah. choose that. And, and they may be practice managers and the ones who are kind of in charge at setting the stage. Um, but that, that did surprise me a little bit. I don't know what, how, no, I, if, I, I that surprises you. me. Uh, yeah. That surprises me as well. I, I would fully expect, you know, vet, uh, vet colleges to be much more progressive ab- uh, about support, but, but you, I think your idea of, of, self-selection in the, you know, in the real world versus an inability to self-select at, at, uh, at universities. I, I think that that, I think that that's insightful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also was, um, I think it was interesting that, um, for the vast majority of vet professionals and students, they knew at least one other LGBTQ person in their professional or school environment. Um, so we weren't tending to see folks who were just completely isolated or the only person with that identity. Um, but knowing another person who was LGBTQ uh, in your work or school environment was not really associated with any of our um, negative mental health outcome variables didn't seem to be protective in any way. It also wasn't um, harmful in any way. Okay. Um, yeah. One other thing that um, we could talk about is just our 
comparison between the LGBTQ folks to the, the individuals in the, um, our 2015 study, in general, we found that the um, LGBTQ people in our sample were more likely to have a history of suicide ideation and suicide attempt compared to the, um, the predominantly sexual gender um, individuals in the Nevada paper. And I say predominantly because since we didn't collect information from our participants regarding their sexual orientation and gender identity in that first study, we don't know that they're 100% heterosexual or cis, right. but I think it's safe to assume that they are mostly um, of that um, um, in those identities. Um, so, and within the LGBTQ population, um, those who identify as trans and non-binary um, had the the highest rates of suicide ideation attempt mm -hmm. and, and tended to overall um, have poorer mental health outcomes um, than even the other LGBTQ folks in the sample. Mm -hmm. And they were also substantially less likely to be out about their gender identity in the workplace and at school. And, and this is consistent with other research um, outside the vet profession, just showing that Trans and non-binary um, and non-gender conforming individuals tend to um, have um, uh, a more difficult time, be more stigmatized, um, experience more prejudice, even than other LGBTQ individuals. Yeah. Do you, um, do you have any information or insight into prevalence of, um, of, uh, of non-binary or, uh, or, uh, trans, um, veterinary professionals compared to, uh, the, per the percentage of people that we see in the general population. I guess what I'm asking is, Oh uh, yeah. Are they is, overrepresented? Is, exactly right. Like is, is our, yeah. Is our profession seen as a, an more open, um, uh, profession or, or is it seen as a, as a less welcoming profession? I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, it's a good question. We actually um, don't know in general um, in the vet profession what the prevalence is of people who identify as any um, LGBTQ identity because um, I don't think those data exist. And our study is certainly not a, a um, representative sample. There was a study in 2011 looking at colleges of veterinary medicine and they – I know that they found a little under 7% of people identified as LGBTQ um, in that um, study of the, the colleges, which I think is a little bit higher than what you'd see in the general population, but is, it doesn't seem to be a dramatic overrepresentation or underrepresentation. I can say that in our study, um, the, the group of, trans non-binary folks was much smaller than the other, um, than the cis, uh, lesbian, bisexual, and, um, gay, uh, participants in the sample. So we're talking about a total of 32 people compared with hundreds that, that fit into those other categories. Um, and yeah, I don't have, gr I don't have a great sense of whether that's, um, under, representation in the field. Um, it could be that since we were recruiting from um, 
formerly the Lesbian and Gay Veterinary Medical Association, which has now changed to, to Pride um, Veterinary Medical Community, that um, LGVMA may have pulled more um, for uh, uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual um, sexual orientations and may have not had as many trans and binary community members. Um, so that may explain our lower numbers. Can, can you talk a little bit about fear associated with um, disclosing sexual orientation or gender identity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, that was one thing that we wanted to look at. It was not just how out are you in your environment, but among the people who said they were not out to everyone, what are the, um, what's the degree to which they feared disclosing their identity? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the measure we used con- com- contained a number of items, things like, you know, I, I'd be excluded from formal networks if I disclosed my identity or I'd be harassed or I wouldn't, um, other people would feel uncomfortable. Um, and so one thing that we looked at was whether um, students versus had a greater fear of disclosure. And we did not find that um, there was more fear in professionals or students. There, there was no difference between those groups. But there was definitely um, higher fear of disclosure related to gender identity than related to sexual orientation. Okay. So again, that goes along with the idea that um, trans non-binary folks are, they perceive and they, they probably accurately perceive more stigma related to their identities and they, they're more afraid to disclose their gender identity. And in fact, I think only two people out of our sample of 32 trans non-binary folks, um, which is a small number, but only two of them reported being out to everyone, either at school or work. Um, Whereas there are a much larger proportion of professionals and students reported being out to everyone if they were gay, bisexual, or lesbians. Gotcha. Okay. What, um, what are your thoughts about next steps? What, so, uh, so I guess our takeaway, we definitely have some concerns about, uh, unhappiness about negative mental health outcomes in the LGBTQ, uh, plus, uh, community. Where, where do we go from here to make our profession more welcoming to be supportive? Like what, what needs to happen? Yeah. And I mean, I think one piece of good news is that overall our study seemed to show that it's the more informal aspects of the environment and that that kind of level of support that was more strongly associated with mental health outcomes. So more so than having formal policies in place or having, you know, really in-depth um, support groups and things like that for LGBTQ folks, it's more just like that general feeling of support and openness and, mm-hmm. and, not regularly being exposed to transphobic transphobic and homophobic language. So I think one thing for people to do is just, you know, reflect on your own environment in your workplace or or, or if you work in a vet college, um, make sure that people are um, up to date in terms of what terminology to use to refer Mm -hmm. to, to individuals from these identities, that it's made clear that, homophobic and transphobic language is an acceptable, definitely, you know, put 
put a, a stop to that. Um, and also just simple things like I mentioned in the paper, um, when someone is new to a setting, not making assumptions that they're heterosexual or cisgender. So instead of like, you know, do you have a wife? Do you have a partner? Or mm -hmm. just using the more neutral type of language, um, you know, asking people what pronouns they use rather than just making an assumption. Um, those kinds of subtle um, communication strategies can be used to make the environment just overall seem more open and welcoming. And, um, you know, I, I encourage people to just take a critical eye at, at your workplace, especially if you're in a, a position of power, a managerial position. Um, think about ways that you can communicate supportiveness and um, also consider ways that folks would be able to comfortably report episodes of harassment or, or other negative consequences that are happening to them without fear of retribution so that, you know, you can be made aware of problems that are occurring. Gotcha. Gotcha. Where, um, where can people to learn a bit to be, I guess, where do people learn about how to be more supportive is, is the question because, you know, I, I think a lot of people, um, when we say, um, you know, ask people what pronoun they're they're more mm -hmm. comfortable with. I think a lot of people say, I don't I don't know how to know how to do that. I don't know how to say that. Mm -hmm. That's not something that that I've seen done or that yeah, that's just not something I've seen done or has been done in the past. Um yeah, do you have recommendations right. on where people can could just start to learn more to do better? Yes. Um I actually in the the paper in the discussion section, I cite a, a paper that is um a a uh, guide to fostering an LGBTQ um, inclusive workplace. So maybe in the show notes, we could include a link to that. Absolutely. Um, so I'll, I'll email that to you now. Um, Cause I think, yeah, I'm not going to be able to just throw out, you know, uh, oh, yeah. the wisdom for sure. But I think that you raise a good point that the first getting some kind of basication and, and comfort and familiarity with um, discussing issues of sexual orientation, gender identity, which I think is, is going to be new for some individuals in the sure. profession. And also being okay or getting comfortable with the idea that you might occasionally say the wrong thing and that what you can do in that instance is own up to it, make amends, show that you're willing to learn and change and don't be so afraid of saying the wrong thing that you just pretend like gender identity and sexual orientation don't exist at all. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree. I will definitely, um, I'll definitely put the resource link down in the show notes, uh, mm -hmm. for people who are also looking around, uh, pride, uh, VMC is uh, the Pride community that we mentioned earlier. They do have links to uh, diversity and inclusion education on their website. So their website is pridevmc.org. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. So that that is a that is a wonderful group. They are doing great work. Um, I, yeah. I have found some, some resources there. So we'll put those in as well. And they actually, um, they provided the funding for the, the raffle that we did for the study. And um, Ken Gorsha, who's a co-author on this paper, was the former um, president of LGVMA when it's called that. Um, and so he got us connected with that group, which was, they were awesome to work with. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Woody. I really do appreciate it. Yes.
I really appreciate it as well. Thank you. And that's it. That's what we got for you today. I hope it was interesting. I always love having Dr. Woody on. Uh, I think her research is so, so important and so, so valuable. And she is just, she's an amazing person. So anyway, I'm glad I got to talk to her. Guys, if you have uh, things that you'd like to see on uh, Kona Shame, shoot me an email. The email address is podcast at com. That's podcast at com, And I will talk to you next week. Be well, be safe, look out for each other. Okay, bye.